my name is Mauricio Yanis. <laughs> uh, I came from I come from Brazil. I'm here in Vienna for a, a performance festival. Um, I live in São Paulo, but I was born in Santos, which is like one hour away from São Paulo. It's a city by the beach, uh, and it has one of the biggest harbors in South America. Mm. So it was, um, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s was a very effervescent city in a way, especially in the music scene uh, and the gay scene. Um, and I think that uh, has shaped a lot what I, you know, what I think, what I am. Um, I'm 44, so I was born in the 70s, uh, 73, and that's it. <laughs> so I'm 43 tomorrow. Okay. And I've been thinking a lot about what it then means to be out for 20 plus years. Yeah. Um, how how does that shift your perspective? Like, uh, because I think there's a temptation to be like, well, my day, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> to be this kind of like queer grandma or queer grandpa and just kind of go with that. Like, how do you adjust? Um, in a way that you're still performing and still relating. Right. Well, it's, um, it's funny because I was talking to a friend um, how things changed a lot. Uh, you know, since I was born in 73 until today. Um, and I do think we have to adapt uh, and change. Because I see some friends from uh, that are my, my age, they still have that same kind of. 80s, 90s idea of feminism or queer um, uh, or of a much um, male gay, white male gay center mm. point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really funny because uh, there's something in the beginning when I started studying arts and everything and I decided I would do performance. Um, I was a bit in, in the art school in my class. I was a bit like the only gay in the village. I was, mm. and and the teacher expected me to do, to produce queer or gay art. She expected this. Yeah, they expected as a mm -hmm. as a whole. And I was like, okay, I think everything's fine. I don't have anything to say about that. You know, I'm just gay, you know, queer, whatever you say. Um, and I went on like that until. I realized I was living in a bubble. Uh, I, that my privilege was making me blind to what was actually happening in society. And especially in the last years in Brazil, we've seen the rise uh, of a very conservative. Uh, it's very complicated, but I think it's, it has, uh, maybe it's kind of similar to the US, except that, you know, they're trying to put that same kind of thought in Brazil, that it's a neoliberal conservative. Christian mix mm. um, that is racist again, that is uh, uh, homophobic again. It's uh, you know against all these things that are happening now, um, and that has in, that is uh, reverberating uh, in the artistic scene, as you can imagine, of course. Um, so, and it's a very uh, I think it's a very complex. Situation. I've been talking a lot about the, I think, commodification of queerness yeah. or of racial identity. I mean, I don't like the word racial, but you know, this racial identity or this <coughs> gender identity is becoming a market pro product. Uh, 
so in the art scene, for example, uh, we had in Porto Alegre, which is in the south of Brazil, a huge exhibition that was called Queer Museum, Queer Museum. Um, and the funny thing is that it was very little queer. <laughs> Uh, the curator, you know, the whole structure uh, of the show uh, and even the many of the selected artists had nothing to do with queer culture and it was um, the, the institution was a cultural institution run by a bank Santander mm -hmm. so everybody was like okay, this is this is very weird mm -hmm. uh, within the queer community. I mean, the most critical part, because I think queerness and critical go together. And uh, the word queer is not a comfortable thing, and shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, but then the exhibition opened, and a few weeks after its opening, the director of the institution slash bank said, okay, it's over, we're gonna close the show. Why? Well. Yeah, because... Uh, wow. I mean, regarding the uh, more conser conservative areas of society, including the bank, <laughs> the show had pedophilia, zoophilia, and uh, this kind of thing, which was not real. Uh, but they were, you know, there were uh, protests of about like ten people uh, saying that the exhibition was, you know, um, uh, showing this kind of things. So they closed the show. Basically, and that uh, that was really weird because then the queer community that before were critical, and I myself were critical to the show, even though I, I had a piece in the show, um, we were criticizing, the, you know, all the structures of the show. But then we had to stop and say, okay, something happened here. This, and I think that's the dangers we we have to be very um, alert to. Um, this process of commodification uh, and many of, uh, I think many of, uh, you know, those identities that are trying to fight for a place uh, are very happy to join this kind of system because it looks inclusive, but at the end it is not. Because once, you know, once uh, the system sees that there, there might be a problem to them, the system, I mean, uh, it will cut you off. So I think this uh, this exhibition is very um, um, made evident these contradictions and dualities of you know uh, the absorption of queerness in society somehow, uh, and I think it has a lot to do with a certain um, comfort zone. In Brazil, it doesn't happen so much, but I've seen it here and talking, you know, uh, during the workshop, talking to the students and everything. Uh, they were very afraid of bringing conflict to the surface. Bringing conflict to yeah. the surface? Yeah, exposing first, conflict. First of all, let's talk about your workshop. You did a workshop here and a yeah. performance here. What was your workshop about? The workshop was, um, well, I've been working a lot with participative art which is already very contradictory, um, and we can talk about that later. Um, but anyway, I've been working with participative art, and um, I've been thinking that after a lot of experiences, maybe um, a workshop 
process could be a, an interesting um, process to achieve a more horizontal result. Results. So the workshop was about no, was called the workshop was called cracking grammar. So it was about thinking. I work a lot with language, so I wanted us to think together about uh, how language is genderized, racialized, um, and how to subvert that in a way, if possible. Uh, so we had like four days of discussing uh, that, not not via an academic point of view, but via personal experiences. Mm. So it was quite intense, you know, exposing your oneself uh, and talking about how, you know, all the insults you heard, uh, how language itself can be offensive, uh, or not offensive, but, you know, colonizing. Um, and at the end, we built together, I mean, they had more uh, agency uh, on the decisions about the performance, uh, but I hold myself responsible for it, of course. Um, so we built together a performance. Um, and it was very interesting in the process how, even though we were talking about conflicts all the time, um, we were afraid of how the exposure of these conflicts could uh, uh, provoke, in a bad way, uh, the audience. Uh, and I was like, well, I think the audience is pretty much related to, uh, you know, most of the audience probably has experiences that are much related to our own. So I don't think they will think when I enter uh, holding the word food, like, mm -hmm. or, you know, you know, we use a lot of insults we heard mm -hmm. uh, during our lives. I don't think they're going to be feel attacked by by it. They will relate to our experiences, to their experiences. Um, but there was this um, um, trying to tame the conflict before it even happens. So that, that's really interesting because queer was a slur, like when we came out, right? Exactly. So yeah. so queer was a slur, and now it's this thing that in some contexts is like bitch or the n-word yeah. that we've now reclaimed for ourselves, yeah. right? And I think that um, that process is different for different communities, that sure. process of reclaiming. Sure. Like, what do you think about this reclaiming of words? I think it's, it's very important and historically we've seen that happen, as you said. Um, and I think the workshop was about that. Um, it's very important for us, uh, I, I mean by us, I'm saying like this abstract us, mm. but you know, I think it's important as a, as a way to um, uh, insert a virus within language. Mm. But at the same time, these, the words we use are, are still used and, as insults. Mm. Um, and you know, I tend to, uh, like in Brazil, kind of a joke I make like with my straight friends, male straight friends, and we call it, you know, uh, we call each other amongst the gay or queer community, like, uh, you know, you faggot, but, you know, like appropriating the word, but then sometimes a, a straight friend feels very comfortable mm. saying, and it's like, hello, oh, my fag friend, and yeah, it's like, it's not, not for you, you. it's not, not for you. you. <laughs> 
so it still happens mm -hmm. but I think yeah, somehow it's it, it's ammunition mm. for our battle uh, and I think uh, dismantling or trying to revert language or dismantling the hier hierarchies or the patriarchal powers that reside in language um, is a way to change society because language builds worlds mm. you know what I mean and, and when I say language I don't say only uh, you know written words or spoken words images uh, you know all body language, I think it, it, it's all um, a way to build different roles and um, subverting it is subverting social relationships. So. Talk about your performance and what that was about. Okay, uh, the solo one was called The Voice of the Others. Um, the Voice of Others, sorry. Um, and I did a performance before, it was called um, The Writer, mm -hmm. in which I sat on a table and you know, people could come and sit with me and I would start a conversation, like very like daily life conversation, hey, how are you, what's your name, you know, what about, how's life? Uh, and from that, we kept on a conversation trying to build intimacy, which is um, an interesting interesting thing because uh, we were building intimacy in front of other people mm. so we were you know we were being uh, watched somehow um, and that was interesting because even though intimacy was being built it was always being um, you know it was awkward uh, and at a certain point I would cut the conversation and say ask what's the first word that comes to your mind now and the person would say, I would drink Chinese and write the word with my tongue. So for here, um, um, as I'm a foreigner um, and we didn't have much time because the performance uh, I talk about now, I do it for three hours for many days in a row. So there's, you know, I kind of occupy the space and people build an intimacy, like mm -hmm. seeing me uh, mm -hmm. on a daily basis, uh, and this one was like, okay, you've got 20 minutes. Wow. Uh, so I said, okay, and there's an audience, like a tribune, you know, kind of audience, mm -hmm. and you're, I'm going to be on stage somehow, even if it wasn't a high stage, like mm -hmm. a higher stage, it was a stage. I was like, okay, so I'm going to go to them and ask immediately, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Uh, and then I'll come back and write with my tongue on a with red ink, which is uh, even though um, the black ink is very dramatic, uh, you know, being in my mouth and stuff, the red ink obviously is clearly associated to blood mm -hmm. coming out of my mouth. So in a way, it was uh, channeling um, the voice of the people in the audience uh, and putting it um, in on the paper with my tongue. And there's one thing in Portuguese uh, that I think in English and in German is not, uh, it's not the same, doesn't work the same, is that language, like uh, um, what language as idiom, what language you speak, uh, I speak Portuguese, is the same word, language is the same word for tongue. Mm, lingua. Uh, lingua, yeah, it's lingua 
you know, you can say lingua for a language or lingua for the tongue. Mm -hmm. um, and the, using the tongue to build language uh, with words that come from people is, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a language uh, blade, let's say. Um, and I th also think that, you know, this kind of, what's the first word that comes to your mind? It is very awkward, though. Even, uh, especially in a public situation, uh, it is very awkward. Um, you know, people get like, "Oh my God, should I really say the first word that comes to my mind?" And you see, sometimes they're thinking, sometimes mm -hmm. they're not. They just mm -hmm. say it, and I think it, it tells a lot um, about the person who said it. Mm -hmm. uh, not, I'm not judging by a word what the person is like. Of course not, but you know, relating that very situation um, and where the, that person is, where I am, the world that comes tells a lot about the situation and the pers that person in that situation. Um, so it interests me in that way. And then, of course, um, in this performance here, I had eight words. Um, so it makes a lot of difference. I mean, the first person I asked, uh, she's caught by surprise, the second not so much, mm -hmm. the third even less. So you, you can see a progression of, on the words. Sophistication. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People have started thinking as soon as you start, uh, yeah, exactly. what would I do if when they, when they see what's going to happen, they already start processing the situation. So you see a kind of, um, you know, escalating sophistication or humor mm. even uh, going on through the words. You know, I think, given that you have, in some ways, with the rise of the digital era, there's a voice given to the voiceless in some ways, right? And you have a rise in what many in the conservative movement call political correctness. Right. Um, but there's just much more awareness around language and its effects. Yeah. Um, and what you say has more consequence now yeah. because there's somewhat of an echo chamber with the internet so yeah, it, sure. it, it travels fast, faster and further and way more people than it would people otherwise. People are more aware too. Exactly. Yeah. So in this sense language has become somewhat even in queer communities where that idea is hopefully everyone has good intentions, right? Yeah. That's, the, that's the idea. Yeah. Um, language has become somewhat of a minefield. Sure. Right? How have you seen people negotiate that yeah. with your performance and then also with the way that they then choose to process language? Sure. Uh, I, well, I think not even in my performance, but in my daily life, I can mm. say that. Mm. And I, I'll come back to the, to the question you said of adaptation. Mm. You know, as I said, um, in 44, I lived in a different situation and I was programmed even though I keep trying to undo the program, uh, I was programmed to uh, have a certain performativity, a certain mm. use of language. Uh, and um, today, for example, genderized nouns like, you know, he, she, um, and a person that opts to use they or it. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes I see myself uh, using the wrong one. You know, if a person asks me, okay, now please call me they. That happened here uh, with one of the students. 
at the, at the party were talking. I was like, she, I was like, they were like, they, please. I was like, okay, sorry. It is still a process. And I think if it's still a process to me, can you imagine for the rest of society? And I'm, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be, um, uh, we shouldn't, you know, claim for the use and claim for the change, mm -hmm. but it's a process. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think my perform this performance um, uh, could reflect that. I'm not saying though uh, that the words uh, that people say in it could be generalized, but I, I do think we have to think of a lot of intersections. Mm. Uh, first of all, uh, the audience that was there, I, I think it, I wouldn't say that I'm, uh, you know, giving voice to those who haven't, uh, because I think people in that context were, I believe they are already pretty much empowered for being already in an art institution, mm -hmm. being able to visit it, mm -hmm. to go to a, a queer festival, mm -hmm. to make a queer festival. Um, but at the same time, um, it's, I think it's a very delicate relationship. Um, and I do think language is changing. And that's a very good thing. Uh, even though appropriation of certain, not by uh, not by queer community or black communities, but by society, sometimes empties, by hegemonic society, mm -hmm. empties the strength of uh, this reversal we're trying to make. I can give you an example. In, from Brazil. Um, in the uh, transsexual community, transgenders, especially in the sex workers, within the sex workers community, um, to escape the police or so that the police and the customers would understand what they were saying to each other, uh, they started using um, Pajuba, which is a language that comes from Africa. They started using some words to communicate so that you know, those in power, police, uh, especially during the dictatorship, because we lived in dictatorship in Brazil from 64 to 88. So that was a 70s, 80s thing. Um, and then it, it became um, you know, a slang within the gay community as a whole, the LGBTQI community. Uh, and nowadays, it's being used by, you know, Brazilian society somehow. You see it in soap operas, some works in soap operas and stuff. Especially when they're trying to sass it up, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, it's, in a way, it's shocking. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because then, we, but we have, we'll have to build another language. Mm. Uh, so that we can still have that power of uh, destabilizing the system. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and yesterday I went to a, a friend's uh, flat here in, in Vienna and there was this sticker on the toilet um, it was make feminism a threat again <laughs> I was like this is so good I mean you know because sometimes I feel that the, uh, this power of destabilizing the system is being drained mm -hmm. And I think collapsing and mm -hmm. co-opted exactly, and I think we need to reassess that 
power of threatening, of you know, of destabilizing it again. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, we can be very comfortable as uh, products, you know, uh, within a system. Yeah, I mean, we're we're in the middle of Pride Month, right? Yeah. And there's been all of this talk about, you know, gay marriage is passed in many countries in Europe as well as in the U.S. And then yesterday the Supreme Court ruled that it was okay for a baker to refuse a lesbian couple, a gay couple. In the U.S.? In the United States of America. Because uh, there was that one justice that was appointed by Trump and he totally okay. changes everything. Yeah. So now we're back 50, you know, this yeah. is like Jim Crow stuff. Yeah, right? like this exactly. is. We're back like 50 years um, in a time warp, so yeah. to speak. So I think that there's this there's this urge to become very self-congratulatory and be like, oh, haven't we made it? Isn't yeah. this great? Maybe we don't need this like sort of like um, queer army again, or we don't need this kind of feminism again. And then this happens, you yeah. know, the state of Arkansas just closed all abortion clinics because uh, again because of a Supreme Court decision yeah. so we see this kind of rolling back of yeah. all of these advances that we thought were set in stone yeah you know this these rights that we hold so dear yeah. are so very tenuous and so there, there, there seems to be this shedding away but I think that we're lagging behind in the realization of what's exactly. being shed away, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Do, do you feel that's happening everywhere? I'm sorry to... Uh, yeah, sorry yeah, yeah, to no, no, let's do that. it. Because uh, as you um, said, you know, going back 50 yeah, years. Going back 50 years. That's why we're saying it's happening in Brazil. So sure, exactly. I, 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 think, I think there definitely is this kind of like reluctance to see it happening everywhere. British people haven't fully comprehended what Brexit yeah, means. Yeah. You know, they have... They have, you know, it, it's really interesting because my partner is German, and when we were, we met in the States. When we were in the States, I was like, well, tell me about this Germany. I've never been there, whatever. And he would say one thing over and over again. He's not, he's not a big talker. Okay. <laughs> he says, like, one thing and then that's it, and yeah. that's the whole conversation. <laughs> 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 so, we balance each other out. Yeah. <laughs> and the one thing that he would say about Germany over again, now he's from the former East, from a farming okay. village with like a hundred people, whatever, you okay. know, so you would think he wouldn't say this, but what he said was, they don't know how good they have it. Over and over, that's all he would say about Europe. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of coming to fruition with the Brexit deal. Yeah. Um, that the British have this like NHS, they have this, they have that, and there's this definite, you know, this conservative element that has, you know, there's been this um, forced empathy yeah. towards the right wings, the racists, the Nazis, the conservatives. That's all about, let's hear them out. Let's say what, and, and there's been this kind of like taking away of their fangs. Yeah. And I feel like they're going to be defanged until you see blood, yeah. right? Until your NHS doesn't, <laughs> it's not, no longer because you have to pay for Brexit. Now. Exactly. Yeah. Until your tariffs are ridiculously high, yeah. until you don't have the same rights of movement that you did before. So I think that there's, there's this thing that's happening right now where um, on the, the right wing, they've made themselves seem safe, yeah. right? And on the left wing, there has been almost like an attempt Towards normativity, exactly. exactly. Right. That's so it. it's 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 become a, a issue for those of us that are like, well, you know, can't you see that volcano erupting? <laughs> like, <laughs> what's going on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really funny because 
where you said this uh, a process of um, normalization or mm -hmm. normative normativity normativity mm -hmm. uh, it worked different within the right and the left because mm -hmm. it for the right it, it makes made, made it seems natural mm -hmm. and for the left it made it it, it drained all the power mm -hmm. from it mm -hmm. so uh, it's really problematic and um, and it seems to me that there is there is a, a certain inactivity within radical thought uh, I'm not going to say left but you know queer thought or gay thought especially you know normalization of uh, like gay for gay for example mm. like you know marriage and and everything especially that uh, white gay male mm. were being um, accepted as workforce uh, within a process of uh, seeing them as you know they're white male mm. the, the gay part was kind of okay and for the system it was very good because actually they didn't have to spend money with kids mm. they were just spending money with themselves mm -hmm. um, and this uh, whole process I think uh, made the, the gay male, co male gay community very uh, comfortable mm. uh, and lost completely its power because of that, the power of change. And uh, we see in Brazil, for example, a lot of um, gay male people being really um, conservative, mm. uh, which is scary. Mm. Um, at the same time, the queer community, I think, uh, is more uh, critical. Uh, and especially in Brazil, I think, it, it, it's still very... Um, um, it is still suffering a lot of uh, exclusion and, and this kind of thing. Uh, but here, for example, what I, what I noticed, and I can affirm it like 100%, but what I've noticed is that this kind of uh, process of normalization of, is building a very comfortable situation again. Uh, and maybe this will end in a very bad thing like you know the gay community everywhere I think I don't know if I made myself clear but it's it's a complex process of I'm so happy I'm accepted now mm. that I don't care anymore about the whole thing mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. it's almost like you try so hard to get invited to a party and you get invited and you come into the party and you don't look at the people that have not been invited or can't exactly, come through the door. Exactly, or you exactly. don't look at the servants at the party. Exactly. You don't look, you or know what I mean? how bad the party is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bad the party. The music sucks. The music sucks, but I'm so happy I'm here. Yeah. Here. <laughs> so, I mean, I love the way that, that you describe uh, language. Um, and, and one of the things, uh, I remember listening to your conversation at the artist talk, and one of the things that, um, uh, I have such an odd memory, because I think I, I, I have a memory that's like a painting, and I don't remember what inspired the painting. <laughs> I, <was> just like, <laughs> I just know what the painting is now. And, um, and, and I remember thinking from what you were saying, that language is like, almost like this phoenix. Right? Yeah. It dies and then it gets, it bursts itself from its own ashes yeah. and then it comes in alive. Yeah. And then, and, and, and from what you're saying, even now, it's like everyone is so attracted to it that everyone wants that phoenix. And the consumption of it is what makes it die. Yeah. 
and then it comes back anew, but it's a different phoenix, you know? Exactly, it's not the same. And, and, and so, do you see that happening since you're traveling so much between Brazil and Europe? Um, do you see that happening globally? Or do you see that happening much more regionally? I think it's happening everywhere. Uh, well, I mean, I saw uh, in 2008, I stayed in France, for, in Paris for six months. Mm. Uh, and when I started, you know, I, I speak French, I, I learn French. But when I got there, I was like, okay, I didn't learn that. Because <laughs> it was a living language, yeah. of course. And it, it has changed a lot. And there were words uh, that were being used that I, I you know, slangs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was really funny. I, I, I found it really funny, and I related to, in a way, to the, the, the thing that I saw. I, I told you about the, the sex worker transsexual mm. community in São Paulo. Mm. Uh, is that, um, well, French, um, you know, peripheral um, people used words backwards. Mm. Uh, like uh, fet, which is a party, they would they would say tef, so it's they mm. changed it backwards, and that was born uh, in the in the banlieue, in the you know the outer skirts of the city, mostly where mostly immigrants lived, mm. and they used that exactly to you know set themselves apart from mm -hmm. uh, hegemonic society, but then all hegemonic society in France now is using that same kind of, uh, uh, you know, slang. Yeah. So it was, uh, again, co-opted or appropriated. Um, so I wouldn't say that it died, that this is a process of, you know, killing that disturbance in language. Uh, but then we have to constantly rethink its uses. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I think it's a, it's a, it's a very, um, and we see it, we see it even, even in Brazil. Uh, people claiming that um, grammar is being wrongly used by society. I'm like, grammar, I mean, it's not a it's solid evolving. thing, it's yeah. changing, it mm -hmm. changes. But this is a kind of linguistic prejudice that um, is again, uh, that reflects the conservative power of society within, you know, uh, uh, marginalized people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. I mean, the same people that fully understand that we no longer speak Shakespearean English, <laughs> yeah, right? <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> have a very hard time with the use of they as a pronoun, right? Yeah. Uh, for a singular person. So it's, you know, they understand that language is evolving, but there's this sort, sort of like, well, but not on my watch. Like, please, not in my lifetime. Yeah, please yeah, don't yeah, let yeah, it evolve yeah. so fast, right? <laughs> exactly. And what attracted you to language? What attracted you to this kind of area? Um, well, um, okay, I, this kind of, this kind of, you know, when I was a kid, <laughs> no, but you know, I always liked poetry, yeah. and I was fascinated um, by the fact that, you know, poetry is, doesn't use proper grammar, mm. uh, you know, it changes it, it can, and it changes it in a way, or changes the relation between words in a way to express something that would be inexpressible otherwise mm -hmm. uh, and that was that made me very alert to language uh, and when I was uh, a student in, in arts in the art school um, I very soon became concerned and this is still my concern about what uh, how uh, an artwork is a way of communicating uh, 
or you know, uh, establishing a dialogue between artist and uh, viewer, spectator, as you want to name it. Um, and in the beginning, I was like, okay, there is something um, being lost in the process. Uh, in this, and I saw an artwork as language. And there's something being lost in the process, and of course, it's a bit authoritarian uh, in, in a point of view. But I was like, I want, you know, I don't want anything to be lost there. I don't want anything to be lost there. But this is also, um, I say, it's authoritarian because it's like you have to understand what I'm saying, yeah. you know, in a way. Um, but then started that started me um, um, thinking. What, what is this that is connecting me to the viewer or me to other people or other people to me? How is it that, you know, um, is, is it possible to have this connection through language, whatever language it is? Um, and, and then I started realizing, because uh, I had the privilege of learning English and French when I was a teenager, and I realized that uh, when I spoke French, when I spoke English, and when I spoke Portuguese, I would be a completely different person. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's something wrong here. What's going on with you, Mauricio? It's, what, why are you acting different mm -hmm. when you speak a different language? Um, and then I started researching, well, I think language shapes us. It determines uh, a way a thought is built. Uh, it determines our relationships. Uh, and then, you know, all these um, kind of different aspects of lang to language and to art language too made me start thinking about it and made me want to research. wanting to miss anything and whatever yeah. and using a language as a way to somehow get to this completion to get to this thoroughness yeah. and, and my question is is language enough I remember there were these lyrics to this song from oh. Suzanne Vega in the yeah. 90s yeah, right yeah, yeah. and she yeah. and it just always really resonated with me and it it was if, if language were liquid it would be rushing in instead here we are in a silent more eloquent than any words could ever be yeah. These words are too solid, they don't move fast enough okay. to catch the buzz in the breeze. No, 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 And it's gone. Yeah, so I mean, the, the idea there yeah. is something that always really resonated with me that I could talk about my actual connections with people. And, and sure, language has a lot to do with that. Yeah. But my connections with people were sometimes much more energetic, much sure. more about this moment that could not even really be described or sure. it had to be felt, right? Um, and I think that language approximates that. Music approximates sure. that, right? Sure. Movement approximates that. Like, so all of these different forms of expression somewhat approximate 
this feeling. Yeah. But none of them can encompass all of the, the things that this feeling is. Yeah. So my question for you, that in your exploration and in your art with, with language, have you found that language is enough? Um, well, okay, that was a question for me from the beginning. <laughs> uh, uh, um, and I, I worked at a lot of in, in actions and performances trying to communicate to the uh, you know, participants in silence. Um, and um, I, I think it's not enough in a way, but then what, what is it that is beyond language? Because, you know, it, it, it might not come to our, our world if it's not described somehow. Um, and I had a, a, a conversation with Celia um, Honik, um, she's a Brazilian um, therapist, um, philosopher, curator, uh, and she teaches at the university where I teach too. And she was like, um, um, you have to find words for what you feel. Um, she said that, well, I'm, I'm using my words, not her words, but she said like, you know, if you, if you feel something that you cannot describe, you have a problem. And I was like, well, I do enjoy, not enjoy, but I do believe that things you cannot describe um, have a huge power uh, not only as a trauma that's what she said I mean if you can't describe there is trauma mm. and then that's why you can't access language mm. uh, and you have to treat treat you have to you know uh, um, relate to that trauma and I, I was like no but I do think there is a power on, on you know not describing not being able to describe something through language um, and I do believe that still uh, even though um, um, it can be dangerous too because then it can be, be described by someone else <laughs> you know what I mean um, it can be appropriated and described by someone else with the wrong name let's put it like that uh, and at the same time I think poetry works very well uh, so the power is so you have to subvert language to describe that which is unnameable. Um, but I do think that sometimes language is not enough. But if you think that, as I said before, that language is not only uh, verbal language, it is a whole set of uh, tools that uh, comprises the body, images, uh, clothes, what we say, what we write, how we look. Um, I think that goes uh, beyond verbal language, but it's still a, a set of language, tool that can be called language as a whole. Um, and of course, I think there's another, another thing, is that language is pretty much based on common sense. Uh, if I try, if I, you know, invent words here to talk to you, you wouldn't understand what I said. So. It's a negotiation, it's a social negotiation. Um, and maybe um, these negotiations um, sometimes cannot touch one's individual um, issues uh, if there are such things. <laughs> so it's a, I, I, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but, <laughs> yeah. but you know, it's like. Um, Yeah, you talked about uh, Susan um, 
Vega. Vega song. I remember um, uh, Depeche Mode song, Enjoy mm -hmm. the Silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a very good, the lyrics are really good. Uh -huh. Words like violence break the silence. Right. I think this, this sentence itself is, is really good. Um, but I th the thing is, I think silence is also codified, socially codified. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes with other tools, the body, the looks, you know. This, um, so I, th to say that something is beyond language or can be touched by language, I do believe in that. Um, I don't think, uh, uh, as Wittgenstein said, that that, it, that is a mystical. I think no, uh, it's it can be very um, uh, material and real. If, if I, anyway, uh, but. Um, I cannot ignore that language is a, a whole, a bigger set of tools mm. that is not only verbal language. Mm. So maybe what verbal language cannot express can be expressed by touch, for example. Um, and I think, in a way, performance within the art world uh, is a, a very good media for dealing with that kind of uh, issue. Because it implies that you and I are present here. Do you know what I mean? So that, that, that's a good segue to the second question I have, yeah. which was about performance. I mean, with Eric, we talked a bit about this performance of gender, this performance of femininity. Um, and we talked earlier about um, how the third person in your performance, or second or fourth, they, they have this idea about what they're going to say yeah. um, before you get to them. Yeah. So it's not, the, the spontaneity can only really truly happen with that first person. Yeah. Because we are put in this mode of performing. And then, uh, you know, just an aside, I've been thinking a lot lately about how for, for queer people, this element of performance in, our, in queer culture is somewhat omnipresent. Yeah. You know, when in, in 2000, 2001, around this time, um, in Seattle, along with other people, I formed a collective called Cure Productions, where we were, it was a performance series for people of color, queer people of color, and, and we uh, used um, the proceeds from that to then have these sort of like discussion series and other things, other yeah. programming. But I, I've been thinking lately about like, well, why did I just have a fundraiser? Yeah. What, why, what was some, what was driving me to put us on stage and have us perform? Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't lament it or regret it. It was amazing. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, what, what was the natural sort of like, this is what we do, yeah. you know? And is it about being in the margins? Is it about being unheard? Is it about not being visible? Yeah. Right? Um, or is it about this kind of perform performativity of queerness, right? Yeah. Like this kind of, um, as you were talking about, being socialized to somewhat perform language and perform your gayness and yeah. perform your your gender or your racial identity or your national identity. We, we have these somewhat roles that, that sure. we are essentially conditioned to fulfill in yeah. our lives. Yeah. So does, does, um, so I guess my question is about um, 
how does one reach authenticity there? Okay. Um, okay. Well, first, I think while you were you were saying, uh, I kept thinking because that's true. Uh, I mean, that's true. I hate to say the, that the expression. That's true. But anyway, we see it a lot. It's pretty evident right. <laughs> that performance is a very important media mm -hmm. within queer community. And mm -hmm. I think that reflects an awareness uh, of how gender, racial identity is socially performed. Mm -hmm. So the issue of performativity, as you said. So I think this awareness makes us uh, want to work with that. So I think performance is, is an important media within the community because of that. Because it's it's a way of exposing this awareness of performativity. Um, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I got lost. The the, the question. <laughs> <laughs> how do we how do we how do we move towards authenticity okay, and the culture yeah. of performance? Okay. Well, I think um, authenticity is a very complicated word uh, because if we think that performativity is always in relation, so it's always a social game uh, that doesn't have a fixed structure. Uh, to claim for a certain authenticity um, without a critical uh, view of what authenticity means uh, can be dangerous. At the same time, I do think that bringing these kind of conflicts to surface, how, uh, what is, why are you saying when you say authenticity, you know, what do you say when you say performativity, when you say gender, and bringing that to surface and destabilizing the, the terminology um, is uh, a way to reach authenticity by mining authenticity in a way, um, of finding um, of, or, or exposing how authenticity is always also a, socially construction, a social construction. This idea that you know someone or some groups or a nation is authentic um, can be very dangerous. At the same time, um, I think we have to bring it to a critical stage, stage as a critical um, um, stage as in theater, not you know, mm -hmm. like bring it, show. Uh, the theatricality of it uh, and bring it to question um, because I think uh, we change I mean our identities change and uh, usually they're socially constructed you know what I mean uh, and I think we have to play with that and be aware of that um, and that authenticity rely, uh, resides in unstable relationships um, and that can be an affirmative thing. It's, it's not necessarily negative, um, negative in the sense of denial of authenticity. But you know, um, as a hegemonic society or patriarchal society claims authenticity to claims for authenticity to a very stable, fixed, um, you know, authenticity, we have to claim a very unstable. Uh, and show that this is theater. This is theater. You know, this, this is not where you're claiming for. Uh, and I think there's a power in that. Okay, 
fellow person because okay. I could talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> but you promised me an hour. I'm trying to, to hold true to it. Um, so with all this analysis, how do you find... So you go out into these spaces and you do these performances and you do these workshops and you're transforming other people and spaces all the time. I'm sure you've heard back from your participants or your audience. Wow, now this has opened me up to this or that. It's shifted me and my perspective in this way and so on. How does this work shift you? Oh, it does, yeah. <laughs> it does to a point. It's really funny because... Uh, um, I'm going to put it in, in an artist, first in an artistic point of view. Uh, the funny thing is that, you know, there's this expectation of a formula, that each artist develops a formula, an aesthetic formula, uh, that, and that your work can be recognized, oh, this is Mauricio Yanis, this is uh, Denise, this is, you know, and it's like, uh, I never had this, I was always against that, I, I don't have an aesthetic. A recognizable aesthetic formula even though some things repeat when they start repeating more than three times I like okay it's over mm. it's over I, I don't want to work with that anymore it's solved in a way um, so um, and I think uh, this has a lot to and especially when I do like participative works because if they are participative and I, I don't want to be the f I mean the the origin of the decisions there, each work is going to look completely different from the other mm -hmm. uh, because it's not my decisions, it's our decisions. Um, and this shifts me personally, not only artistically, because you know the work, my work is shifting because of that, but I'm shifting together. Uh, and I, th I really think I'm in a process right now of. Uh, completely changed, I'm, I'm totally unstable. My relationship to my own work is completely unstable now, because uh, I'm doing my thesis and the, um, uh, I'm questioning participation in art. And by this, in this process, I realized that maybe what I'm doing is not uh, building a situation that is emancipatory. Pretty, pretty much the opposite. That is, I'm expropriating the work of other people mm. under my name mm -hmm. to, you know, capitalize on my name. Mm -hmm. So it's um, it's a very um, um, disappointing situation actually. After being 20 years doing that, um, and now reflecting on that, realizing that there is a problem, uh, but. At the same time, I don't see that as a negative thing. I think it is part of a critical uh, way of thinking, and that is shifting my work con constantly. Um, another thing is that um, I think we respond as artists, artists or as people, as persons, uh, we respond to our social uh, problems, conflicts. Um, and the situation in Brazil right now uh, all that's been happening since a few years ago, like five years ago, uh, has changed a lot to um, my point of view from thinking that everything was beautiful and we were moving towards progress and, you, you know, society, there's now this education and no, no, Mauricio, no, wake up. 
things are not really as you thought. They, they ousted a whole president. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, but that process was, uh, I think we, we, it was awakening. I mean, it's a terrible thing. Yeah, and that World Cup just, happened too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And exactly everything, yeah. suddenly you, you see everything that's happening since five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, uh, it has changed completely society in a very short period of time. And we have to respond to that. So all my personal experiences within the art world, like within my, my work or, or the work I, I propose, uh, changes me a lot. Not only um, uh, in a reasonable way, but always also emotionally. I mean, I, I, one, I did a performance in 2008 in the Sao Paulo Biennial that for a year I was completely out of tune, but really emotionally out of tune. I'm going to present it again in Milan, let's see what happens. <laughs> I hope I'm more mature now. Uh, <coughs> but you know, yeah, and I think that's it. Performance, or action as I prefer, is I am uh, proposing something that is a brand new experience, not only to the spectators, but also to me, uh, it is very, uh, it has a radical power of change for myself. Uh, and I try to be generous with that. I try to be extremely open to that. Um, otherwise, I would be authoritarian again. Like, no, this is my work. This is, I, you know, I'm seeing it from the distance. I'm not, I'm leaving it. I'm leaving it with you. With you. you people that are here, you know, in front of me. Uh, and this is uh, why I like this so much, I think, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because uh, it is a process for everyone and it's a risky process for everyone, but to me too. And also because in a way I'm responsible for that, I'm the, I'm the one that proposed that situation. Yeah. So even though I try to play with the idea of uh, authority and authorship, I propose that, so I cannot ex- escape responsibility for what I've proposed um, and think of who am I when proposing that. I think that's the central dilemma of radical ideology, right? Yeah. Is that when you question it, everything, you question yourself as well. Of course, of right? course, of course. And then, so this self, whatever that means, can't be static. And yeah. the concept of that is super scary and dangerous for a lot of people, right? Yeah, yeah. Because if I can't establish a self that is solid and stable, yeah. then what does that mean? That what, the, what do I mean in the world? What do I mean? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> Who am I? What am I? <laughs> like, why do I have to change? Yeah. And then I think we, we come back to, uh, essentially, to the uh, idea of queerness, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> promises. <laughs> it has been such a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. It was a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> <laughs>